I'm William Thomas, a producer at Empathetic Machines. In this series of podcasts, we explore the concept of mission. More specifically, we explore why people get committed to a mission-driven business. Figuring out how to deliver profits to shareholders and owners is hard enough. Why would people get involved in a business that has goals extending beyond this? What is it about these people that develop the focus on a societal or some other sort of benefit? We produce these podcasts with a company called Andourage, a distinctively mission-driven company. The Andourage website states that the company is all about reinventing wellness. The company develops CBD-rich, full cannabis flower extracts. So that's the mission, reinventing wellness. Each podcast will show how one individual came to this mission. Now, these individuals are influenced by big events like the Civil Rights Movement, the HIV-AIDS epidemic, 9-11. Big events, however, only provide a backdrop. What's interesting here is how life events accumulate over time to form this mission commitment. I think you really enjoyed the stories. A quick final note before we get started. For compelling stories, come here to Empathetic Machines. For medical advice, consult an expert. Consult your doctor. This is not a medical advice show. Today's storyteller is Jim Tacono. His story is the context. His story explains why the Andourage mission needs to exist. Husband, father, tennis pro, forensic scientist, and sufferer, Jim has suffered from a painful and debilitating disease for about 20 years. He was inspired, however, to have a better family experience, one largely free from the symptoms of this disease. And as a result, he became a bit of a tinkerer, a bit of a treatment entrepreneur, if you will. So he initiated a process to combine the best of medicine and pharma with other approaches to his wellness. I tend to think of Jim as a philosopher. So let's start the story with the end and some insights he gained from his journey. One of the books I read was Man Searches for Meaning. And did you read that book by chance? Vic, Victor Frankel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm surprised I read it so late in my life. I feel like I should have read it a lot earlier, but maybe this was the perfect time for me because he said something. There was two things that really helped me that he mentioned. One was learn to suffer with pride. I'm like, wow, that's, that's a good way because once I learn to deal with it my way and humor and things, that really helps me, you know? And, and also, what is your, you know, what is your meaning? And, and mine was, it's my family. That's my meaning. I, I literally, if I need to, if I'm in a down place, and I'm feeling icky or pitiful or whatever crappy little thing I'm feeling, whatever emotion that's going to pass through, I really can shift it and just honestly think about my wife and daughter, how much joy they bring me. Or I can think about my friends. You know, those, those are things that really keep me going. So those are the things that really I think I pushed away, which is so funny. The one thing that really helps you the most is the one thing I think I pushed away the most. But, but you know, I'm things are just, I'm just, you know, happy. I've got confidence. I like the word bliss is coming back around enjoyment. Yeah. So here's Jim's story. Okay. Well, I, I was born and raised in, in Salt Lake city, Utah and, you know, born in Utah, you know, obviously the first thing people think of is, is the Mormon religion, but I was born in a kind of a different perspective. I had a mom who was from an LDS family, a Mormon family. And then I had a dad who came from a very Catholic family. I had a great childhood. I had a wonderful childhood. And I had great parents. I played a lot of different sports growing up. I played baseball, basketball, you name it. I pretty much played it. My parents pushed multiple amounts of sports and things on us. So as time went on and I got older, I started to really like the game of tennis. I remember 
I don't know how old I was, but probably in junior high when I started to kind of really like the game of tennis. And uh, I remember my mom bought me a wood tennis racket. We didn't have a lot of money. We we're just a middle class family. And uh, so I couldn't get tennis court time. So I would have to play just against the wall in my backyard. And uh, it, it was a brick wall, so you'd get weird bounces off of it. And I had to worry because the ball might go over to my neighbor's house and hit their window. So I just kind of learned how to play the game by myself. And, you know, years went on. And I, I kind of played, taught myself. And I was going through high school, and I, someone said, you should play for the tennis team. And I tried out, made the tennis team. Played, you know, on, with some really good players, you know. And I really enjoyed the game of tennis. But we went on to college. I quit playing tennis and to be honest, I started studying my first, I actually went into college, I studied, can we laugh at this, is advertising and media. And I went in and I started having advertising classes right out of college. And it was quite fun. I enjoyed it, but I had to take a prereq. I had to take a science class and I always liked science. I did really well in, in high school and chemistry and whatnot. And so I took a science class and it was an intro to forensics. That's all it was. Just a criminalistics class. That's all it was. And I'm like, wow, I, I really like this. I really like this class and I really enjoyed it. What really hooked me was, unlike most science classes, you know, you're, you're, to, at least for me in my perspective, was you had to stand by your data. You know, you had to, there was this, this whole element of law enforcement involved where the end of the day, your data just wasn't a piece of data that went somewhere and maybe it was a blood result for whatever, for, you know, a hospital test. It was more that this data was connected to maybe, you know, the cause of death or was it a, a DUI or an accident or something like that. And to me, that's what I really liked. I really liked the fact that the evidence that I was working on was connected to something a little bit bigger. I actually had to change, you know, majors and degrees. And so I, I just started taking more classes. I had to go into the science department and get into chemistry. I had to get my minor in chemistry and starting, you know, I did the, did an internship at the, I think it's the Utah crime lab. And so after four years of college, I was able to be able to work at any crime lab. I was uh, trained to be able to collect evidence, analyze evidence, and be able to go to court with that evidence. And so right after college, literally I don't know, pretty fast, about a month after college, I got a job working as a GCMS, uh, that stands for gas chromatograph mass spectrometer confirmation. So what it was is a workplace drug testing. You've probably done it sometime in your life. You get called, someone says, you got to do urine test for a drug test. You go do it. That's what we were doing. Jim, was it all work for you at this point? Tennis didn't just quit after high school. Right around 19, 20 years old, as I was still in college, I started working at a tennis club and um, just stringing tennis rackets and working the front desk. <laughs> That's what I did. And it just, you know, checking people in and you know, going, doing that kind of stuff. Well, one day, one of the head pros by a wonderful gentleman by the name Lindsey Rostron, he came from a tennis family, pro tennis player, wonderful player, wonderful person. He came up to me one day, he says, I've seen you play some tennis. Would you like to become a teach? So I, I started playing more tennis again, started, you know, working on the courts a couple of days a week. And then he would say I had to learn to feed a tennis ball properly to little kids. So I'd have to go out there and I'd spend hours just feeding tennis balls. And then he made me, before I was even allowed to teach one lesson, I had to go with the club and spend so many hours 
with each individual pro on the court. And after about, you know, I don't know, maybe three or four months of just doing that stuff, I started coaching tennis and I've been coaching tennis ever since. It's always like, it's always been a part-time job in my life. I've always loved the game of tennis. And I love being on a tennis court, especially I love coaching and teaching now. Eventually, after working about a year and a half or so at the at this toxicology lab, I was just like, I'm sick of this. I haven't even had a break yet. Jim had been working all the way through high school, right through college. I mean, many of us have done this. It's time for a break. So Jim went backpacking in Europe with a college friend. They hit the sites. They ended up at Oktoberfest. And then they came home. So when I came back to the United States, you know, I actually had to get money again because I just burned through it all. <laughs> I don't have a car. So I got a job working at, you probably heard of it. It's called ARUP and it's a mm -hmm. reference laboratory. It's a clinical toxicology job. It was a pretty cool job than just doing therapeutic drug monitoring. So anytime you've gone to a hospital and the doctor draws some blood, maybe to look at some medication or how it's working, is it therapeutic? Is it toxic? We would work anywhere from doing that to looking at Sometimes you don't know what it is. The hospital asked for a full tox screen, which was my favorite part of the job was a full tox screen because it was looking for a mystery. You didn't know what you were going to find. You know, you'd get every possible sample. It could be stomach content fluid. It could be blood, urine, whatever they give you. You, you analyze it, analyze it for everything. And so that was predominantly my job every day would be to take a sample, you have to clean it up. You just can't directly shoot urine onto a machine. You have to put it through many steps to clean it up and look for the specific drug or toxin that you're looking for. And at that point, you can put it on the instrument. Was it like CSI? Did you ever find anything, you know, exciting, mysterious? The only, every time I've ever had something that was odd was when I got a sample from the poison control from a supplement. They had a patient that was showed signs of poisoning. And, and so the, the poison control gave me where to go. They're like, we're thinking it's strychnine. And I actually did a, did a exam, extracted the sample and looking for, you know, strychnine and other possible toxins. And yeah, the, the supplement, if you have a supplement, just an over-the-counter supplement, I don't think it was common, but that had strychnine in it. So they had to pull out, it went off the market. Outside that, most of the most of the time, I mean, a lot of blood alcohols, a lot of blood alcohols. <laughs> and then after I was working at ARUP, I got a job at the University of Utah, a job called the Center for Human Toxicology. And that's where really things kind of take off for me in the, in the chemistry world, because I am working in a research laboratory. And this was a really good job. I don't know if you've ever had a job. You don't realize it's good until you leave it. <laughs> so mm. this is one of those jobs where the management, the, the directors, they just had a, the best way I'm going to describe it is they didn't, the hierarchy was really not there. They expected the PhDs to clean glassware just as much as a tech would do. I worked on medications like scheduling and I got a publication with one of the professors there. And a lot of stuff there, you're just working with grant money. Are they looking at how, what medication might work? What does, so like one project was looking at getting cocaine out of sweat. Can you detect cocaine out of sweat? Another project was looking at hair. Were they looking at THC in hair and THCA and the metabolite, looking at cocaine and its metabolites in hair? I want to sum up where we are. Jim, a hardworking, smart, middle-class guy with a love for tennis, has found a career. In forensics, analyzing samples for drugs, contaminants, and the like. 
He's meticulous, stands by his data, he's active, but something's about to change. And I would say I'm starting to now to notice something is wrong with my health. This is the first time I think I actually see, I would say when I'm starting to go to the bathroom now, I start to see blood, you know, and, and it's starting to happen kind of in a common, you know, rate. It's kind of just kind of happening. All I know it's around, around 2000, around 2000, yeah. before the, the Winter Olympics come to Utah. And I'm just, at this point, I'm, no, I'm noticing that something's just a little off with my health, but not enough to be concerned. I would see blood. I'm a typical guy. I would say, you know what? If I don't die, I'm fine. When the Olympics came into town, I where the Olympics were and where my job was on the campus of the University of Utah, it was right at Olympic Village. And I'm like, they're just telling us the security nightmare, what was going to happen. You know, I'm like, is it really worth trying to come to work? They're saying, you guys want to take time off, blah, blah, blah. You know, so people were doing all sorts of things to try to figure out their schedule. And I thought, you know what, this might be a good time for me to just, you know, just, I'll just coach tennis. I'll take the time off and coach tennis. Well, and as I had that idea, someone from Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory reached out to me and said, we're going to have a temporary lab during the Olympics. Would you want to do, do it? And the money was insane. It was like three times what I've ever made in my entire life. I'm like, holy crap, lab people can make this kind of money. So so I said, yes. So I quit my job at CHT. I don't know if it was a smart move, but I took this job for about a month. The job ends and I, I have no job. I don't have a health insurance. So I started thinking, what should I do? I actually drove out to California. <laughs> I think about the story out loud. I'm like, this is nuts. Not with a plan at all. I have a cousin that lives out there. I said, can I crash at your place? I said, sure. And I'll look for a job. I'm going to try to find a job in the wine industry. So I jump in my car and I start driving. And I get through Utah and I'm somewhere, it's all I-80. I'm somewhere outside of a small town like Winnemucca. And I start to realize that, you know what? I'm not happy with this relationship with this girl I'm with. This current girl, she's a nice girl. There is just, there's just like, it's not going anywhere. I'm not happy with this relationship and that's why I'm not feeling so good. So I go out to California and I just kind of chew on this information. I actually get a job offer at Charles Krug Vineyard. I want to think it's Charles Krug. It's right around that area. Because I interviewed quite a few of them, just as a wine chemist. And wouldn't paid a lot, you know? And I'm like, oh, should I do this? Can I do this? You know? And in, the, in my head, I was balancing, well, I'm in this relationship. I don't want to be in it any longer. I need to end. I have no real money. I can't live in Sacramento with my cousin and try to commute to Napa. That's not going to work. Can I live somewhere in Napa? I looked at the prices. I'm like, there's no way. Ah, this isn't going to work. So I turned around. And I drove back to Utah and had the courage to have the conversation with the, you know, with the girl. So this is the cool part was, was I'm struggling, you know, I, I mean, I don't have a job right now. <laughs> I just broke up with this girl who I thought was, I actually, you know, gave her a ring and everything, you know, and I was not even girlfriend's probably a fiance. So, um, I get back to coaching tennis a little bit, teaching on the side. I end up calling one of my good, real good friends. His name was Ryan Davidson. I just give him a ring one day, you know, he's a, he's a good voice of reason. He's one of those friends that you call when you need some guidance. So I, I give him a call and uh, we just chat for a while. And he says, you know what? Do you remember your friend, Cherie, the one you used to work with? I think you should give her a call. She had something about her. That's all he said. <laughs> you know, so, 
So I said, you know what, maybe I will. And uh, we had one date. And I think right then I knew that that's the girl I wanted to be with, you know, because it's just so easily she grounded me so fast. And it was so, it was a really neat, just felt that's where I was supposed to be, you know? And uh, so from that date, so we, I don't know how much longer it was after that, but I asked her to marry me. I got a job at the medical examiner. So this is when I got a job working for the state. So at my job at this point now i'm working forensics i it's law enforcement and medical examiners most of my caseload would come in from two forms one would be law enforcement which would be looking for mainly since this is forensic toxicology you're going to be looking for impairment it can be anything you know blood alcohol all drugs of abuse and prescription medications and then then we have medical examiner cases and this is what we do is we would help supplement the medical examiner in the death death investigators in causes of death. I had a sample one time come through and it was a law enforcement sample. So another live person. And I, I ran the sample and it was for an opiate. It was for Oxycontin. And it was so much that on my instrument, it didn't, it did, it, it bled into the next sample. So I, I come to the head toxicologist. I said, what am I supposed to do? And the first question he asked me, he says, is this a medical examiner? Is this a dead person? And I said, no. He says, what? I said, this is a live sample. And he goes, crap. Okay. He says, do some dilutions. So we figured out this guy was 10 times the toxicity level of, of the, of the drug. He had such a tolerance, I'm assuming. And, or, or he just snorted a bunch. I, we don't know, you know, it's just a sample, but we figured it was enough to kill everybody in the lab. As I was working this job, I am starting, you know, planning my wedding with my wife and now about somewhere in New Year's after we, I asked my wife to marry, we went to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And that's probably the first time I realized my health, there's something's not right any longer. Something's wrong. We were going to go just celebrate New Year's in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And it's just the two of us. And I went, it just wasn't feeling good on the drive there. Just wasn't feeling good. And my wife can even tell that I was getting agitated. Actually, it wasn't my wife yet. It was just my fiance was asking, you know, realizing that I was agitated and short, keeping really short with her. And I make it to the, to the hotel. I go check us in and go get the luggage. And then my stomach just goes crazy. And I try to go, oh my gosh, I got I, I to go to the bathroom. What's going on? And I try to get to the bathroom. I don't even make it. And what comes out of me is just blood. This bloody, icky, mucusy stuff, just blood. I'm like, oh gosh, this, I'm, what am I, 30 years old? And I can't even make it to the bathroom. Now I'm feeling embarrassed. I don't want to tell, I didn't even tell her. Didn't tell Shree anything. I don't tell her nothing. Keep it to myself. Throw my clothes away. I just throw my underwear away. Hurry up, clean myself up, and try to make the evening. Does that make sense? I'm there to have New Year's, you know? Yeah. And at this moment, I know something's wrong. And I'm literally, I'm denying it. I just only want to think about it. You know, you want to be in the moment. I want to enjoy this time. So I did actually eventually start telling Shree that, you know, something's wrong. I need to go into the doctor. You know, so so I make an appointment just to see my general and I tell him what's going on. I tell him, I'm, you know, I'm starting to see blood and mucus when I'm going you know, to the bathroom now. And he was, oh, he's such a great doctor, you know? And he goes, you know, I think we should just get you to see a gastro right away. Let's just not even play with it. He says, there's a good, you know, it could be nothing. There's, you know, there's lots of reasons why we can see things like this, but let's just go get you checked. So I go up and see a gastro, a great doctor by the name of Gordon Harmston, very, my very first gastro doctor. He says, you know, this does sound like ulcerative colitis. 
It's the first time I've ever heard ulcerative colitis ever. And um, he says, well, we won't know unless we do a colonoscopy. So this is my first colonoscopy experience at 30. I think I'm 32 years old, 31 or 32 years old, my first colonoscopy. Most and, of us get to wait a couple of decades longer for that. Uh, yeah, I, you know, hopefully we'll wait till they're 50. I'm like, that's worth it. <laughs> yeah. And and so the worst part of a colonoscopy is the prep. I've heard when someone says it cleans out future food, food you haven't even eaten yet. <laughs> you know? So everything comes through you. And, and, and it does. I thought I did a good job. The nurses said I didn't. And I have to do an enema. I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't even know how to do an enema. They just give me the bottle. I don't even know what to do. I'm like, well, how do I do this? And I look at the back and you're supposed to lay on your side. I'm like, I'm not going to lay on my side on the floor of a bathroom floor of a hospital. <laughs> oh, Eventually I'm clean enough to do it. And so they, you know, they put me under and, and we also learned about something else about me that I don't do well with these uh, medications, these anesthesial medications. They put me under just a cocktail of medication. So I get the colonoscopy. I come out. I don't come out cleanly. I get nauseous, so they put me on uh, an anti-nauseous medicine called prome uh, promethazine, which also makes you all sleepy and icky, and I become a real jerk on Versed. And my wife says, I'm, I'm basically an asshole. I'm really mean on this medicine. But So the day goes on, I go home, I'm real jerk to everybody. Eventually the medicine wears off. The doctor gets back to me, and sure enough, I have ulcerative colitis. They took a biopsy, and at this point is sitting in my left side, descending colon only. So then they said, let's start medication, you know, and I'm still don't know anything what ulcerative colitis is. I don't know what it is. I have no clue. You know, I still, I didn't even research. Basically my autoimmune system is off and it's at whack and it thinks my intestinal lining of my large intestinal tract, that's the important part of your life. And it's, causing, you know, it's almost like attacking basically, and you get ulcers and, you know, effects are pain, diarrhea. What else do you get? Oh, you get joint pain, <laughs> you get nauseum. The list goes on. It, it just keeps going on and everybody's different. So anyway, I start with first line medicines and things are not really that bad. Doing what first line medicines would be, I think a group of medicines called the ASA five drugs. I'm having okay success. I really am. We, we, life goes on just fine. It hasn't really affected me a lot other than the embarrassment of like, am I going to make it to the bathroom? But most of the time I got it pretty good under control and I could keep it under, you know? So anyway, so, so, so my, we, we move, we're living together. Things are fine. You know, we're uh, first year of marriage is fine. I'm working at the lab. I'm doing the medical examiners and something cool happens. Specifically, Jim gets a really cool new work opportunity. I mean, really cool. Working with a new lab, developing the protocols to test for performance enhancing drugs. Like, well, like beta blockers for the biathlon. I mean, who knew? You know, so, and you, you read all sorts of crazy things that you would have to look for. All sorts of crazy drugs. One drug was called modafinil, which is a drug that's used for people who have narcolepsy. For someone who doesn't have narcolepsy, it's, they say it's like having coffee. Someone described it as having coffee and cocaine without any jitters. And so I read an article where a guy took it, uh, a journalist, just to, to write an article just to see how it was. And he said he had 
so much focus. He finished all his work in the day, played with his kids and started his work for the next day. And he said, I can see this drug being abused. Jim continues to be a professional forensic scientist. He's very successful at it. He's a happy husband. Life comes at you fast. For Jim, it was his wife's decision to change careers, to get a master's degree. And this required a move to Seattle. So we move, move up to Seattle. It's probably around 2005. So I've had the disease for about two years. This is when everything starts to really show. <laughs> this is when the disease really starts to start to take parts away from me. So I don't have a job right away. So we move up there. My wife's going to grad school. We had at least, we were smart enough to put some money aside that we knew we needed a couple months. So we had a couple months. I went at hundred percent stress, but I start looking for a job. And then I think, you know, you're going to find out throughout my story as it goes on, I literally start not doing lots of things I don't like. I like, does that make sense? I start putting things away and I, and, and tennis is the first one. I'm not now coaching any longer. I'm not teaching any longer. And I, I get a job. I finally get a job. Jim joins a pharmaceutical firm just as it was purchased by a larger pharmaceutical firm. Jim gets laid off. They eventually shut down the Seattle plant. They really don't need it. And, you know, I got a little severance package. It was stressful, you know, but, you know, I, I at least had a little bit of money. But my disease is still, I'm still bleeding. I'm still only taking, I'm doing just basically enemas and prednisone. It's now starting to become a very common medication in my life. And if you know anything about the steroids and the prednisone, you really don't want to be on it long term. It just, the side effects are pretty nasty. So by the time I got laid off from, you know, the nerve artists and we're all getting laid off and getting our savage packages. Jim takes an offer with another large company, Amgen. You're going to hear a change of tone here. Due to the illness, the work itself is beginning to take a backseat. At this point, I am, I, I have health insurance. God, my God, I have decent health insurance. I think that's the biggest reason I liked Amgen because I had unbelievable health insurance. And so I get to see a good doctor guy, a doctor named Fred Drennan. And, and he, you know, I go see him. He's my gastro now. You get another colonoscopy. Now the disease is now moving up further. It is now going up further to the left side. So he's looking at it and he says, look, you know, these, these uh, ACE 5 drugs don't seem to be working so well right now. Let's put you on a Remicade. And this is the first time I have to get a drug infusion. And the whole goal now isn't cure. There's no cure. You're looking for a remission. Try to get the disease into a, a sleep state, a remission state. And there's some data that, you know, Remicade can help some people. So I'm like, I got to do something. This, is, this isn't working. I'm getting sicker. Uh, the work, I'm not liking my work any longer, you know. So I get my first infusion. And so there's always this potential for some sort of allergic reaction. So they always kind of get ready for that. So, so, so this time they really were really worried. They just kind of get, they do really slow. It's a very long, slow process. They just really slowly introduce the medicine and they just watch your body and they go around. And you know what? It's a very humbling experience going to get an infusion because as bad as I was feeling and, and knowing that, you know, I have this inflammatory bowel disease, I have ulcerative colitis, I'm still just really kind of grasping on what it is. I am still surrounded by people in the infusion center who have cancers, I, you know, and then you see kids in there and, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I shouldn't feel too bad. 
you know, I'm in my thirties. <laughs> at least I had my first date. I had a first kiss. You know, and I'm looking at a kid over there who's, you know, and it's just pretty humbling to you. You just sit there and, and you can't feel bad too much. You know, you, you right. have to suffer with some sort of pride. So, so this happens. I get my first infusion. You don't expect anything. There's no miracle. You know, you have most of these medicines, uh, when you're doing at least, you know, my experiences, there's a loading phase where you, you start at time zero, you get in, you know, your first infusion, then you get one two weeks later, or depending on the protocol, some are two weeks or four weeks. And then you get on what you call maintenance. Once you get the loading phase, it might be three infusions in a short amount of time. And then every, whatever, six or eight weeks, you just get a maintenance dose. So I get through my, my loading dose. I think it's three, three of the loading dose, and there's no improvement at all. And doc, my doctor, he says, you know, I think if you're not having a clinical response by three, I don't think it's worth the side effects. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. <laughs> okay. I said, well, what does that leave us? He says, well, it doesn't leave us much. He says, we can continue doing what we're doing. So he asked me a question. He says, how are you doing? And I just start spilling off my disease state. Well, doc, I'm going to the bathroom 12 to 14 times a day, blood and mucus, uh, limited appetite, blah, blah, blah. He stops me. He says, no, no, that's not what I'm asking. <laughs> I said, how are you feeling? You know, it was the first time someone asked me, how am I feeling outside of my disease? You know, most of the time it's just talking to my colon. So I don't know if that makes sense to me, but just felt like half the time I was talking to the doctor, they're just talking about how is just your colon. He's the person who asked me, how am I feeling? How is my psychology? How am I stressing? So I, I just start talking to him. Kind of basically, I'm talking to you and I tell him about my job and how, you know, I'm not really happy with it. It's had a lot of stress and it's just, I don't think it's a job I should be at. And, and he says, well, can you quit it? I said, well, you know, I really can't because my wife is in grad school and, and we wouldn't have any health insurance. And he says, well, you know, there, you'll probably, probably find ways, you know, you can look into that. And he goes, he says, let me stop. He says, we, we doctors know that stress can cause you to get sick. We know that, you know, so personally, you should probably quit this job or do something different. And I said, well, what am I going to do? How am I going to get health insurance? And he goes, Jim, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. You should really talk to your wife about this job. And then he says, you may, you know, you may get better. You may find something. So, so I went home and, and, you know, I talked to my wife about it and she says, okay, we kind of made a semi kind of plan and we started looking at state health insurance and she was still a student. So luckily we had the, you know, the money from the, the finances from the layoff. And then I, whatever we kept putting away. So, you know, we drive old cars and we were just trying to be very smart. So I, you know, I quit the job and within about, I don't know, not too long, a month or two later, I, I decided to start playing tennis again. Jim has a bit of a resurgence with tennis. He starts to coach a local team. His wife graduates with high honors. She gets a job with a native American health center. She's Navajo. This is really meaningful work for her. And Jim is able to become a tennis coach. I'm starting to realize, you know, maybe it's time to make a new chapter. Maybe that is a better way to looking at my health than what I was currently doing. So my disease state was manageable. It wasn't remission. It was just manageable. So I continued, you know, playing tennis and coaching and just really focusing on more of a mental health and what could I do on that? So what happened was 
my wife was working and she was just, you know, it wasn't a high salary. The health and benefits weren't that bad. And you have a person with a chronic disease. We both knew in the back of our head, if I have a major flare or things get really bad, or if my colon gets so bad, we, we could be bankrupt. You know, that was an right. actual thought. It was a real thought. As you've learned by now, Jim's a positive guy. But if you're listening carefully, you can begin to hear some fear entering the narrative. Bankruptcy is a big fear, but there are things to fear even more. I go visit my family in Utah and I see my neighbor and I start talking to him. And I knew he was sick in high school, but we never knew what it was. So he was an amazing baseball player and an amazing college or amazing basketball player, college level, bare minimum. And uh, you just one day, he just doesn't play. We don't see him outside much any longer. So fast forward, I tell him about my disease, ulcerative colitis. And that's when I know that he has ulcerative colitis. Well, he had it, I should say, because when he had it in the 80s, there was no medicine. This is, there were none. This is basically prednisone. And they removed his colon. So he has no colon anymore. Now he says, I have my life back, but it's a different life, if you will. You know, and he says, look, he says, if you ever get to the point where you think you lose your colon, don't take it lightly. Think about it. It's a pretty big decision. You know, and I said, okay. So I was quite surprised. There it is, the fear of losing the colon. This realization spurred another thought for Jim. He, he thinks he can trace his symptoms, all of them back to a dog bite he received in 1988 and the full spectrum antibiotic that was prescribed for his infection. Now, he has no proof, but for Jim it begins to introduce a new theme. The medicine and advice that he's been receiving are lacking something. I think this is when I'm starting to realize that maybe I need to find people that are, who have, you know, different disease states so I can get some information, sharing some sort of place where I can hunt down information, you know. It's a theme we'll see as we go forward in the story. Meanwhile, Jim's wife gets another fantastic job opportunity and they move from the big, bustling town of Seattle to a small town of Dolores in Colorado, right off an Indian reservation where she'll work. Doesn't even have a stoplight. No, I went, so no. we came from a town of Seattle. Does that make sense? It's, you know, lots of people. And I went from to a town with no stoplight. Yep. And, 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 and for the first, I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to lie to you, the first week and a half freaked me out. It's like nothing should be this quiet. <laughs> You know, I'm still hearing the, the sirens and things going off. So anyway, about the second week, I'm like, oh, my God, I really like this. I start working as a tennis coach for uh, Cortez, Montezuma Cortez High School. It was probably, it ranks in maybe maybe one number two team I've ever coached. Just, just a real group, a good group of boys. This is not a tennis town. There's no indoor courts. You have to shovel in the, you know, come February for the girls' tennis season, things like that. It's, you know, you got these elements. So anyway, we have a great tennis season. We go off to region and two of my boys in the doubles position, I think number three doubles position, make state. And they're not supposed to make state. People, you know, we were not supposed to beat, you know, Aspen or Steamboat Springs. You know, people have access to indoor courts. And these guys did really well. They made it to state. And this is the crazy thing was we go to state. They do pretty well. It was a really fun experience for the boys. On the way back, out of nowhere, I start driving. The next thing I know, man, why is my tailbone hurt? And it's burns. It just feels like a burning right in the bottom of my tailbone, a burning sensation that just radiates, 
you know, like so many inches away from it, it just burns. And I can't sit without being uncomfortable. Like, what is going on? So it progressively just never goes away. I have a hard time sitting. I can't really lay down. Can't ride my bike anymore. Living in Dolores, Colorado, there's a lot of mountain biking trails, lots of things, very outdoorsy. I can't even do that any longer. So I actually have to start getting tailbone injections. They do some, you know, x-rays. They see nothing wrong with it. And they actually just, just, you know, give me some injections for pain. And I have to do this a couple of times. But this is the beginning of a symptom that happens consistently. My tailbone never stops really ever quit hurting. It, what happens before any major flare-up, it starts to burn up. And so what I find out later, as I, you know, I tell this to my gastro, you, you can get other with you know autoimmune disease such as these inflammatory bowel disease that I'm dealing with, you start getting other symptoms. Joint pain is one of them. So now my joints are starting to actually hurt and comes and goes. So that is really, you know, I think the beginning of when the disease starts to pull things away. And at the same time, I decided, well, let's, you know, they had this beautiful rec center, a beautiful four brand new tennis courts. I'm like, man, we, we could do something with this. So I take all my experience from you know my years of coaching and teaching at the clubs and whatnot. And I said, you know, I went to the rec center. I said, let's do a tennis program. And, and I got to the point where people, even people traveling would start to learn about it. people coming to the four corners. would learn about what we were doing on Saturdays and Sundays. And we started welcoming all sorts of anybody. If you want to play tennis, we'd bury up with some people and start playing. It was just kind of this community thing. We just kind of grew, you know, and it was really just really amazing. We had people coming from Tucson, Arizona, who would spend their summers and just play tennis with us and whatnot. And so during this time, my disease is, is, is still active, but it's really, really mild. It's very mild, you know? And so we, I li- we live in that Southwest Colorado for at least a couple of years. Jim's future doctors will recognize his time in Dolores as being a time of particular health for him. But all good things must come to an end. Jim's wife gets a call to become an officer in the U.S. Air Force. She goes to OCS and she thrives. And then my wife got her first orders and we got orders to our first duty station was Langley Air Force Base in Hampton, Virginia. And that is when my story really changes drastically fast. I, I go to Virginia. We don't know anybody in Virginia, not a soul. And, uh, First time I experience uh, humidity, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, how do people live like this? You know, I lived in Utah, Colorado, even Washington is still dry compared to that, you know, so to that humid summer. So we get there and I remember when we arrived that the pollen was really high. The pollen count, you could see it. You could actually see yellow in the air. And I'm like, wow. And obviously they have a lot more trees and a lot more, you know, green than we get in the desert. So I just, okay, this might be a problem. So we get in there and and within a certain amount of time, I start just not feeling good. I'm like, I need to see an allergist. I start getting allergy injections just for seasonal allergies. Well, I don't know exactly where it happens, but I know what happens. I know how this happened. (laughs) My my wife becomes pregnant and uh, we are expecting our very first child. It came a little unexpected than we were planning maybe a year earlier. So here we are, new state, new job, 
and a baby on the way. <laughs> Nobody in Virginia living with us. I've never held a child in my life. I never held a newborn ever. This would be my very first time. <laughs> I have an older brother and older sister, Tony and Marianne. They have kids, you know, they're all up in college and whatnot and done with college. They, they wouldn't even let me watch their kids. <laughs> I'm like, am I qualified to be a parent? <laughs> you know, if my parents, my, my siblings don't even want me to look at their kids or watch after their kids. We always kind of, my wife and I, when we talked about having a family, we always thought that we, one of us might stay home because my mom stayed home for us. And, and I know it was a pretty big sacrifice for her, but I, God, I thank her for doing it. I mean, she did so many things to help us succeed. And I, I, you know, I said, I want, you know, our, you know, our child or kids or whatever to have something similar. So we really, you know, we talked about it and it was like no decision, but as I got sicker in her career growing, it was just right on the walls. I'll just be the stay at home and do that. So anyway, clueless to how hard this job was. No clue. I'm not prepared. <laughs> so my daughter's born and, uh, you know, we bring her home. There's the, all the you know, excitement and nerves of, of a newborn. You know, just like, just try to keep them alive. That's your number one job. That's it. You know, at this point, I, things are just not going well for my health. And what I mean by that, I am now going and using the restroom upwards to 25 to 30 times a day. And you get these spasms that go back and forth. And then I start to notice, I get these uh, chills, body chills, and, I, and, and I'm not having, I become a, uh, a temperature intolerance. It's not a problem I've never had with before. Now I can't handle, you know, if it's 72 degrees, I might be cold. You know, I might have to put a heating blanket on me. Anyway, so the other thing I'm starting to notice, I start getting a little plan like, hey, we're going to do something. We live in Virginia. Let's, we're going to go to Bush Gardens, you know, Saturday morning. I wake up. I don't feel so good. I'm not going any longer. So I'm not really doing things as often with my family. It's, it's just slowly, sporadically. I start to get this mindset, is this how it's going to be every day? You know, in your mind, you're just like, am I going to every day, this is a chronic disease. Is this how is it going to be? But also in the back of my head, I start knowing that you can remove your colon. That's the one cure for ulcerative colitis. My wife went back to work after her, her maternity leave and they put her right onto graveyard shift. I'm like, oh, great. And I had a child who was not a good sleeper. You know, and I, I made a decision, you know, she wasn't sleeping in the crib. She was crying and I'm just like, oh my God, I'm going to do something that I'm, I'm not sleeping. Something is going to snap. So I, I picked her up and I said, sweetie, you're just going to lay on my chest tonight. I need sleep. Her name's Jonesy. I was a stay at home dad. I got to really emphasize her name and Indiana Jones was my favorite movie. So she's named after Indiana Jones. So anyways, I pick her up and I, I just hold her. I put her on my chest and I hold her. And uh, she falls asleep and I fall asleep. And I said, okay, I know, I don't know what the rules are. She's not sleeping. No one's healthy here. So I, I said, we're going to have to co-sleep for a while because I have to do something. And it works. I mean, she's sleeping. I'm sleeping. I feel a little bit better. Well, one day, Sheree's mom, Lorraine, says, hey, I'm going to come out for a while. and come visit you guys. I have some time off. Would you like it? She, you know, she comes in the house and she looks at me a little bit and says, are you okay? You look a little pale says, yeah, my ulcerclitis has been kind of bad. I was thinking about just going over to the clinic and then just to just get a checkup. You know, would you be okay with that? She says, yeah, yeah, go. I'll watch for the daughter. And Jim ends up in the ER. The diagnosis, dehydration from his illness, his lack of sleep, the trials of parenthood, 
The hospital checks him in. Out of this experience comes a referral to another specialist and another go at the infusion of Remicade. Since Jim last infused the drug, there's been a change to the protocol. There's a pre-med loading of Tylenol and Benadryl to counteract some of the side effects. The first loading goes well. The second does not. They give me my pre-meds. I wait for a while. They flip on the Remicade, starts dropping my body within a few drops. I look at my hands. My hands are red, like lobster red. And then my lips start tingling. I'm like, what is going on? My lips feel big. They feel puffy and big and tingling. I'm not, not really thinking much about what's going on. And then I start kind of coughing and I feel this tightness and I keep doing this feeling. What is going on? And, and the nurse is about to walk out. She didn't look at me. She's just finishing doing her thing and she's about to go to the door. And I said, nurse, I, I don't feel so good. And she stops and she looks at me. And she's like, holy, and she looks like, she goes, holy shit. And she runs over and turns off the Remicade. And then she ups the IV, just the fluid, gets the EpiPen, calls another nurse and, and then calls the doctor. And then one nurse is calling the pharmaceutical company. I think it makes it to understand what are the protocols. If someone has an allergic reaction, they just want to make sure. And everybody's kind of waiting around just to see if I'm going to slip all the way into an anaphylactic reaction. My skin is red, face is red, my hands, my lips are swollen. I'm having a hard time. I'm just kind of sitting there waiting and waiting. So I, at that point, I'm waiting for to see the doctor. I decided, you know, I'll, I'll give my wife a call because I can't drive. I'm not gonna be able to drive. By the time she showed up is when my doctor actually came to see me. Even when the nurses said, you know, hey, we have a problem here. You need to get in here, but you know, no, she didn't really make an effort. So, so I was kind of irritated about that. Then she says, are you sure it was an anaphylactic reaction? It wasn't just a bronchospasm. And my wife was about to say something, but the other nurse jumped in and said, absolutely not. His skin was red. His face swollen, his lips are swollen. There's an anaphylactic reaction. He should never be on this medicine again. So I just said, can we go? So I, we walk out. I don't want to do anything. I'm just, I'm just, I, I'm just thinking, it hurt. My body is hurting now. My best way to describe it is every time I took a step, it felt like my skin was wanting to pull apart. It felt really weird at the skin level. So I, we, I walk out and get to the parking lot. I get in the car and I look at my wife. I said, Sri, I'm never going back to that doctor again. And, and, you know, and I think this is when I start to really think I need to be more in control of my health instead of just being a passenger. Jim gets another opinion at Virginia Commonwealth University. The medical advice seems to be pretty good, but then he starts to try other medications and they all come with fairly serious discomforting side effects. This is where things go up and down for my health because they, my wife gets deployed to the Middle East. And I'm like, what? I, I, you know, it was a last minute too. I was telling my wife, there's like, there's no way I can do raise my daughter all by myself with this disease state. If I was healthy, I think I could do it. And it's a very difficult job, but I think I could do it. But when I'm hovering at 60%, I, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be good. I'm not going to be good at this job. Uh, I packed up one car and I, it was, this was in December. It was, it was, I think it was a day before or two days before, two days before Christmas. My wife was actually being deployed on Christmas. So I had to drive from Virginia to Salt Lake City, Utah by myself. So I, I jumped in the car and, and I, I drove. I got there on Christmas Day and just in time, literally just for everybody to open gifts is when I came in and my, my wife flew with my daughter and we got to spend literally, I only got, this is honestly, I think about this and how rushed it was and I didn't get the proper goodbye with my daughter or my wife, but it was fast. So. 
So I had to take my wife to the airport by myself and drop her off. And, and, you know, she had to go and go to the Middle East and I deployed. So luckily my sister-in-law and her, and my brother-in-law, Mike and Miriam, just wonderful people. I, you know, just live in the basement with my daughter. We just sleep together. And I start coaching tennis again at Salt Lake Tennis Club. And I ended up getting a really good doctor. So I guess since they were under a different insurance thing, he didn't, he said, I can spend more time with you. Does that make sense? He didn't have to like, like, you know, oh, I get 30 minutes with you. No, he had like an hour and some time with me for the very first visit. And he actually sat down and looked entirely through all my records. He says, like, I'm taking out every important information. I'm basically writing a Jim DeConio ultra colitis resume, if you will. And I says, you can give that to the next doctor and they'll look right at it. And they're like, okay, I know where I need to go now. He's typing, he stops. He says, he looks right and says, what the hell happened in Southwest Colorado? I said, what do you mean? He says, your disease is, you're active, but it's almost no symptoms. I said, no, I know. I don't know what's going on. He says, we need to figure out what's going on in that area for you in that environment, because for some reason, it, it you know, I bet if we had the right medication, we could have kicked you right into remission right then. It could have been whatever. just for some reason, you're really close with almost no medication. But anyway, so she's deployed. I'm, you know, with my daughter, I, I have some help. I have family. I'm coaching tennis. I get another colonoscopy. I, I don't know how many colonoscopies I've had by now. I probably have enough to get a free one if I had a punch card. But anyway, so I get another colonoscopy and um, the disease state is about the same. I end up going back to the same personal trainer I knew in Utah. She was a Pilates and yoga and she knew about disease states a little bit. And so she would take her time and work with me. She looked at me as she was stretching me. She said, you ever uh, thought about using cannabis? And I thought, said, no, no, never thought about using it. But at this juncture, I might, I'm willing to try about anything. She said, well, you know, think about that someday, you know? And I'm like, you know, I'm not going to try it in Utah. I don't, I'm not going to jail. <laughs> you know, it's illegal. So, so, and I know, you know, that, that there are, you know, some things with cannabis, but that's as far, that's the first time I've ever talked to it and conversation ended and, and that was it. My wife is deployment is over and she actually had to go to a little class after so she goes to alabama for a little bit after finishes some training and then she goes back to virginia to, for her duty station we're there for a little bit longer so get back into the scene of ecu get back to you know my friends and play a little tennis they started adding other medicines okay so okay let's add they start adding i'm gonna name some medicines for you and these were all tough medicines uh, the side effects were horrible methyltrexate uh, you know, how many times I did it before my, my lymph nodes would swell up so bad you could actually see them. Yeah. Then I did two drugs are very similar. One's called 6-MP or Imiran, which I think if I'm correct, might be a low, some sort of chemotherapy type of drug. But side effects are horrible. I mean, it just, your skin feels weird. I felt my hair was starting to thin out a little bit with it. Uh, I wasn't on long. It would start with my lymph nodes, would get all icky and swell and, and like like. They call the doctor and they say, just get off. It's just not worth it. So eventually a new drug gets on the market and it's called Intibio. And Intibio, it works differently. It, it's a, an antibody drug, a, a protein, I think. I don't know for exactly, but it works differently. It literally works mostly in the intestinal tract only. I start that process of getting infusions. So I have to go back to another infusion center. And I, you know, this medication, side effects were at first weren't too bad. Everything was not that bad. And I actually, after, after my loading, I actually saw, I felt, at least I felt better. So I'm like, all right, this is going to be working. So you get your dose. I got my low dose and I was doing it every eight weeks. 
somewhere along the line, I'm sitting there and it's kind of like, gosh, I feel kind of itchy. <laughs> yeah. And I lift up my shirt and you can see a hive running across my chest. And I look at the nurse and she sees me and she sees and she says, oh, shit. <laughs> you know? So she turns off the, the, the med and calls and, and, and they get, you know, an EpiPen ready. And they said, well, just finish the infusion and see it. And, and then they call the, the pharmaceutical company and you say, yeah, you can pre-med with this. And then, so now I have to get IV, some 50 milligrams of Benadryl with, I think, 50 milligrams of, uh, of prednisone. I don't know which one it is. So I don't have an, you know, I don't have a reaction. So at this point, I'm now noticing the disease. My infusions are now going from about, I get, instead of getting a couple, you know, it's every eight weeks, instead of getting like a month or six weeks of, of good health, I'm getting less and less and less. And I start telling this. And so I talked to doctor and tell him, I said, well, let's increase it by one week. Let's go every seven weeks. So, so I'm doing that every seven weeks. I'm like, this, this isn't working. You know, I am going in the bathroom, I'm bleeding, I'm um, losing weight. My attitude is now starting to really change. I'm just getting shorter with people. I'm not sleeping well anymore. I'm getting these, I call my rolling waves of chills that go up and down my body. Uh, I can't control them. And now these hives are starting to kind of randomly show that come and go. And I'm like, something's not right. I don't know what to do. I, I don't have any options. There's no more medications to take. Uh, there are ones on the market. I can start looking at research, but like, eh, I don't know if I want to do that. You know, like, what do I want to do here? So my doctor says, let's get you another colonoscopy. And just as I get that one scheduled, my wife gets orders uh, to Colorado, to the United States Air Force Academy. And so my doctor writes a note. She says, like, you're going to have to see you know, someone at a university hospital when you go to Colorado, you can't, you can't, you know, be a normal clinical doctor. So she writes a little note that basically says, you know, he's been on list of medications. Okay. And then the results of my last colonoscopy, pancreatitis with all of this, you know, tubular cancerous stuff. We like to make sure he sees a university doctor and also possibly schedule a colorectal surgeon. I'm like, oh shit, I'm going to lose my colon now. And I actually started to really look into what will life be if I have to get it back? Right. That was what I was starting to literally think about life with a bag. And if I go to Colorado, because I'm probably I'm like, okay, if I have a surgery. At least I have family, I have a brother that lives in Denver. I, I could, you know, I can do this, you know, and, and that's where where I come to Colorado and, and then things start to really change. <laughs> things really are about to change for Jim. Download our next podcast to hear how transformative this move really is for him. Remember, what we're studying here is mission. Why do people become inflamed and passioned over the course of their lives to a commitment to a certain course of action, a certain cause? The second half of Jim's story is really important for understanding what has inspired the Andourage mission and the people who have undertaken it. Many thanks to Isaac Foster and Music for Makers for our theme music. I look forward to your comments and thoughts. Bye for now.